we're, uh, we're in chapter 4. Last time we closed out looking at uh, how Peter brings the hammer of conviction down on the guilty Sanhedrin for crucifying the Lord Jesus. He just looked right at him and said, you did it. You did it. See, they thought when Jesus was crucified and buried, it was over with. But no, now they're having to deal with a resurrected Jesus. And that they made the mistake, not of a lifetime, but of an eternity. So what we're about to see in chapter 4 is a guilty, convicted, and exposed religious establishment trying to stop the spread of the gospel. That's why I called this tonight, You Can't Stop God. Can you say that with me? You can't stop God. You might as well go try to grab the wind, then stop God. You can't do it. So let's begin at the first four verses and in uh, chapter 4. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed. Well, why were they disturbed? Look at this. Because they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And these religious people who ought to be shouting and jumping are deeply disturbed that they're preaching the resurrection. And, you know, Paul will tell you if, you, if you follow closely in Paul's writings, you hear over and over again, the book of Acts is going to tell us several times, one of the main reasons they would get persecuted and get thrown in jail was because they were preaching the resurrection. Not only of Jesus, but the future resurrection of all saints. See, the core of the Christian message is resurrection, folks. That's the core. I mean, if if you heard Paul or you heard Peter, James, John, or Jude, any of them, preach, you were going to hear them mention resurrection. You can go to 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul says there, if the resurrection isn't real, we are of all men most to be pitied Uh, because we're wasting our whole life for nothing. See, Paul preached, Jesus rose, and because he rose, everyone who puts their faith in him is also going to rise. And that was his core message. And that's what got Peter and John in trouble here. It was the name of Jesus that bothered them. And Peter's claim that God had raised him from the dead. And so this was the focus of, of their anger. And notice who it is that's trying to stop the moving of the Spirit. It's not the common man. It's not the atheist out there. Who's trying to stop the moving of the Spirit? It's the religious leaders. And I told you last week, and I'll say it again tonight, ain't nobody can beat up on you like religious folks. And you know what I've noticed? Well, I could tell you a quick story, but it'd take too much time. Here, I'm going I'm to do it anyway. I I preached in a church once. It was very religious. As a matter of fact, a, um, a, guy, a friend of mine went to this church, and it was a big money church. I remember driving up into the parking lot, and all you saw was Beamers and Mercedes and Cadillacs and all of this money. It was in the heart of Houston, a, a wealthy suburb of Houston, actually. And my friend had invited me, and they had disinvited me. And my friend said, oh, you're going to disinvite my friend. Well, then if you disinvite him, you disinvite me. And they invited me back. Because my friend was a big giver in this church. I mean, I'm just telling you the bottom line. And so I went. And now here's what they did. They called me and they said, now, how do you do it when you speak? And I said, well, I speak. <laughs> and they said, no, but, but, but what do you do? Do you, like, 
do you give altar calls? And I said, every time. Oh, we don't do that here. Now, they called me preemptively to make sure that I was under their thumb and under their control. So they said, we don't give invitations. We don't give altar calls. That's just not something we've ever done in the whole history of our church. And I said, well, if I'm coming, I'm going to give an altar call. That's just me. And I, they said, well, uh, how long does it last? I said, it lasts as long as it needs to. Seriously, this was a conversation, and, and there was one on the phone, and two were standing right next to him, and I could hear them telling him what to say to me. So I just said, I'm coming. I'm going to give an altar call. You, you know, you guys will live. And so I went, and I'll never forget. Uh, we went in there. I sat on the stage, and this place, it was a good attendance, about 800 people. I mean, I'm talking about $3,000 Armani suits, expensive dresses. These people were professionals, lawyers, attorneys, CPAs, doctors. That's just this church. It was, it was a Bible church. Well, I'm a Bible church. We're teaching the Bible tonight. And so I remember these three elders uh, that had called me were glued to the back wall like you had super glued them, standing there while I preached. Now, right before I was introduced, the devil hopped on my shoulder and said, you better cool it. Because you know what they think. You better cool it. Don't get all excited. Just be sort of professorial and, and, and be nice and, you know, be one of them. And then the Lord said, be yourself. See, see, you are your best at yourself. Nobody can do you better than you. And God anointed you, not you trying to be somebody else. He anointed you. So I got up and, and I just let it go. I mean, I was just myself. They sat there not moving. They were like wooden Indians pinned up against the back wall. Their eyes were like saucers. And at the end, I gave an invitation. And I can't tell you, I can't tell you how God broke loose. These sophisticated, intellectual, educated, successful people flooded the altar. They're, 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 tears streaming down their face. And these men back up, they never moved. They're horrified. And I just went down. I started laying hands on them. Nobody had ever done that. I promise you that. And the, the, the tears were streaming down. I mean, I'm telling you the truth now. God knows. One woman whispered in my ear, I was thinking of suicide this week. Expensive dress. Like I said, sophisticated. Now, we, that altar call lasted close to an hour. We could not get to everybody. And we left. My friend took me to his house, and within about 30 minutes on the door, and we opened it, and it's more of them. I think the elders gave up and resigned that day. But what I'm telling you is this. You can't stop God. You can't do it. Now, ask me if I was ever invited back. No. But they, they were so bound up. They so needed Jesus. They so needed the anointing of God. Many of them needed to be saved. They were sitting in church lost. And when they heard a word of life, just the simple Bible being preached and given, they were dying to be touched by God. 
It was the name of Jesus that bothered these religious leaders. But you know what? Their anger was futile. Verse 3, they laid hands on them. That means they arrested the, the Peter and John, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. Now notice, they're arrested, and these religious leaders are trying to shut it down, but many who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So here they are trying to shut it down, and God moved anyway. And 5,000 people got saved. You can't stop God. When God starts moving, you can't stop God. You might as well flow with it because you can't stop God. So even as they swoop in to arrest Peter and John, 5,000 people respond to Peter's second public address. That's just his second message. So in two messages, he's seen 8,000 people get saved. Whew, that's a great altar call. God, give me a few of those one day. But even though their anger was futile, I'm going to tell you it was formidable. Because the next day, a roll call of who's who shows up to judge Peter and John and do their best to intimidate the two Galilean fishermen. Look at verse 5 and 6. It came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, the high priest and his whole family, all of his kin, were all gathered together at Jerusalem to shut two men up. So this was a formidable gathering, and they want to know one thing from Peter and John. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Of course, remember now, we're talking about the healing of the man who was lame from birth, and Peter said to him, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God. So somebody who had never walked, never stood, was instantly healed in the name of Jesus. So now here's all these religious leaders and who's who's saying, tell us, by what power or what name have you done this? Well, that's asking that question to a couple of preachers is like throwing steak in front of a dog. You ask me who I preach about every week, and I'm going to be on it, brother, quick. And so look what they did, 8 through 12. Then Peter Let's read together his condition, filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm. Said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name, let's read it together, everybody, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, keep going, whom you crucified, keep going, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Mm, good stuff. And I'm constantly struck with the boldness of Peter. This is the same man who cowered and trembled before a young girl's questions as to whether or not he'd been a disciple of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was going through kangaroo court and they were trying him for something he hadn't done, he was, Peter was waiting out in the courtyard by a fire and that little girl said, you were with him, you're one of them. 
And you know what he did, denied three times, the third time with cursing. That same man. Now, the Holy Ghost makes a point of putting in the word, filled with the Holy Spirit. He is now a man of lion-like boldness. He's afraid of nobody. What a difference the Holy Ghost makes, folks. That's what this book is all about. What a difference the Holy Spirit makes. We don't want to just be touched by the Holy Spirit. We want to be filled. We want to be empowered. We want to be anointed with. We want to be possessed by. So Peter says, you want a name? I'll give you a name. Jesus Christ is his name, the one you hung on the cross. He just won't let them go with that, will he? And now that the knife is plunged into their conscience, and it was, Peter twists it. Verse 11, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, mind you, this is a direct reference to two Old Testament prophecies, Psalms 118.22, Isaiah 28.16. Let me read the psalm. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, who's the builders here? It's these Jewish men. Because God had anointed the Jewish people starting in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham to bring forth a nation called of God to testify of God, to be a nation for God, to build a house of testimony, a nation of testimony. And men like these were the builders, the architects, the ones who are supposed to be following the word of God. And yet, the very builders rejected the chief cornerstone without which the building will collapse. The chief cornerstone was rejected by them. And that should have been the one the builders recognized above all. Well, there's our chief cornerstone right there. But the one they needed most, they rejected. That's what he's saying. Peter informs them they were the ones the Old Testament prophets had spoken of, warned about, who would reject God's Messiah. Next, Peter provides one of the greatest gospel texts in the whole New Testament. And I want you to read this with me too. You get to preach tonight. This is too good to leave alone. Verse 12, are you ready? Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given on men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. Not Confucius, not Buddha, not Allah nor Abraham or Moses. They said, we're children of Moses. Jesus told them, your your daddy is the devil. Quit saying you're the children of Moses because if you were a child of Moses, you would recognize me, but you don't. So your daddy's the devil. Your father is the devil. You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your daddy, you will do. Jesus was not out to win points with what he said. He cared more about truth than popularity. May God baptize the whole church of America in the same conviction. We're more concerned with the truth than popularity. Right? Next, we see the dilemma of the rulers because they've been nailed by this message. I mean, they are sitting there cross-eyed. How do we respond to this? So we see the dilemma of the rulers, what they saw. Verse 13. Now, when they saw 
the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized, this is one of my favorite verses, they had been with Jesus. How did they know? How did these leaders who killed Jesus, how did they know these apostles had been with Jesus? Well, one thing, there was no denying the skill with which Peter had preached the scriptures. Let's remember, this is a fisherman called off the seashore. Blue-collar, working-class guy, uneducated, never been to seminary, never been to college. But I, told, I went through his message last week. His sermon's a masterpiece. He had used the Word of God like a sword to stab through all their defenses and to pierce them to the very heart. He, he quoted Scripture perfectly. It, it was a master sermon. They looked at this blue-collar worker, and they looked at what was coming out of his, his mouth, and they said the same thing about him that they said about Jesus. How, where does he get this wisdom? They said about Jesus. Where is he getting this wisdom? Isn't he the son of Joseph? Hadn't he grown up among us? Where has he gotten these things? Well, he was taught of God. And, of course, he was God. There wasn't any denying these men had been with Jesus. They talked like Jesus talked. They persuaded as Jesus had persuaded They did miracles like Jesus had done. And then these religious leaders had the undeniable miracle of a healed man standing right in front of them. You can't deny somebody that you've seen every day begging for as long as you can remember, on his feet, walking, leaping, shouting, rejoicing, totally healed. You can't get around that. Verse 14, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing. They wanted to say something, but they could say nothing against it. So the dilemma of the rulers was what to do with two undeniable testimonies standing right in front of them. So that's what they saw. Now, next we see what they said based on what they saw. And we want to skip verse 13 and 14 because I accidentally repeated it in the text. So let's start at verse 15. Here's what they said. But when they commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what are we going to do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we, even we, can't deny it. But so that it spreads no further. Now notice, that was what they were after. That Now, can you all... Stop a minute. You see, you're seeing a guy healed. They've told you how he was healed. You've seen a miracle. Why would you want to stop it from spreading further? I'll tell you why. And it's usually the reason why people want to stop a move of God. Control. Control. They don't want to lose control. Those three elders of that church were terrified of losing control, and they lost control for one Sunday. But that's what it was. And with these rulers, they were used to having the people right under their thumb. The people worshipped them, bowed down when they walked in. They walked around parading the way they prayed, parading the way they fasted, making a big deal out of themselves, loving being called you know, father and priest and these different things. They loved it. And now Jesus has totally upset the apple cart. And and they thought they nailed him and got rid of him. And now here comes these 
disciples of his, and they're doing exactly what he did. And they're realizing they're losing control. Most things come down to control. The battle going on in Washington right now is all about, say the word with me. Oh, yes. Because men like being in charge because then they can get what they want. Now, verse 17, but that, so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. For the name of Jesus is powerful. They said, we know where all the trouble starts. It starts when they start using that name. We don't care if they want to preach Moses, but these guys aren't preaching Moses. They're preaching this guy named Jesus. And so that's where all the trouble starts, these miracles and all this uproar. So we want you to shut up when it comes to the name of Jesus. It's the same in our culture today, isn't it? Go out in society and say, well, I had a great time with Buddha today. Hey, cool. I I, I read Confucius today. Wonderful. He's full of wisdom. I went out and hugged a tree. Great. You love nature. Wonderful. Hallelujah. Go hug it again. But when you say, I had a great time with Jesus, their pupils dilate. And they go, "Uh uh-oh, it's one of them. That name carries power. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Notice their number one concern, don't teach or preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Folks, their opposition was not Peter and John. They weren't opposed to Peter and John, but they were opposed to the Son of God. And this is always where Satan attacks. It's always where his focus will be. If anybody or anything promoting and exalting the Son of God can expect to be attacked because you're lifting up Jesus, and that's what Satan is attacking, Jesus. And if you're all about the Son of God, if you're all about Jesus, if that's your message, then Paul assured us you will suffer persecution because it's his name. Now, next we see that their threats and demands were defied by the apostles. Verses 19 and 20, Peter and John answered and said to them, hey, whether it's right or wrong in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. He said to them, come on, guys, you think we ought to listen to you instead of God? And then verse 20, I love this. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We're witnesses, and we've seen him, and we've heard him, and we're going to have to talk about it. Everybody say with me, I've got to talk about it. See, if you've seen him, if you've tasted of him, if you're walking with him, whatever your heart is full of, that's what you're going to talk about. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if your heart is full of Jesus, you're not going to be quiet about it. You've got to talk about it. So can we say it again? I've got to talk about him. I want a church that has a bad case of the can't help it's, right? I can't help talking about it. I can't help talking about Jesus. Now, when they did this, and they said, they said, we can't but speak the things we've seen and heard. This is the very first case of civil disobedience found in the New Testament. There are times, folks, when Caesar so abuses his power 
that the believer must draw a line in the sand, even at the cost of imprisonment or death. And you know what? Um, Americans, some Americans last year in 2016 in America were thrown in jail for taking a stand because they could not, they could not abide by the abuse of Caesar, meaning government. And there was a while there, I thought, we might see a lot of believers thrown into jail. It got that close. And I'd already decided, I'm just telling you, we talked about it in staff. I said, I'm not going to, if I need to talk about, say, Romans 1, which calls homosexuality a sin. And this was during the bathroom thing and the same-sex marriage thing. And I got up and I spoke on it. I said, if, if they come and tell me I can't do it anymore, I'm going to be right here where they were. And I like to think I trust God would grace me to say it anyway. Because I'd rather be personally right with God and wrong with man than right with man and wrong with God. And so would you, Right. But we almost got there, folks. I mean, it came perilously close in America to mass arrests. And uh, Peter throws it back in their face. He says, we must obey God rather than men. Now, verse 21, when Peter said that to them, they retorted with more threats. Verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people. If not for the people, they would have they would have really let him have it. But the people glorified God for the healing. Said, what? Our religious leaders are going to throw these men in jail and whip them because for healing a man? So they knew they couldn't get away with it this time. So verse 22, for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now I read that this week and I want you to think with me a moment. When Jesus was born, this man who was healed was a little boy of about seven years old. He was in Jerusalem. There he was from birth, hopelessly crippled, unable to join in the fun and games with the children. He was unable to help at home, couldn't help his mom, couldn't help his dad, couldn't do anything. Unable to even go to school unless somebody picked him up and carried him. And that's humiliating for a boy picked him up and carried him and sat him down. And then they had to pick him up and carry him and bring him home. Everybody looking. And you know how cruel kids can be. So he's, he's seven when the Savior is born. So I got to thinking, Jesus visited his hometown one day. When Jesus was 12, and this man was about 19 or 20, Jesus visited Jerusalem and he himself got in trouble because he went in and was debating with the doctors and they were amazed at his wisdom and mama couldn't find him. They, they left Jerusalem to go back home and everybody said, where's Jesus? Well, I haven't seen him. I don't know where he is. And they went back and found him sitting among the doctors, all the doctors surrounding this 12-year-old listening to his wisdom. But see, right then and there, this cripple was in town, in the same town. And so... I just wondered, I don't have any scriptural basis, but I wonder, did Jesus see him when he was there? 
Well, you know, was he out there and clearly crippled and clearly afflicted? And did the 12-year-old Jesus see the 19-year-old crippled and think to himself, hang on. Hang on. I'll be back. I don't know. But Jesus being all-knowing, all-powerful, did he know? I'm going to tell you what I think. I think he did. Just hang on. I'm going to be back around in about 18 years, and when you're 40, you're getting up. 28 years. It's just a thought. But isn't that a neat thought? And my my reason for saying this is you never know what God is going to do. You never know what he's thinking regarding you way before you're aware of anything. See, some of you think God was shocked when you got saved. But God knew you were coming all the time. He He saw you saved before your mama met your daddy. It's just a thought. Then we see that when they were released, Peter and John made a beeline for the brethren. Look at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their companions, their own companions, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. You know, the Bible says that when one member of Christ's body suffers, we all suffer. The battle lines, folks, have been drawn now. It's no more mystery how the Sanhedrin, how the authorities are going to treat these men. They're going to threaten them. They're going to beat them. They're going to imprison them. They're going to be against them. There's no more wondering about it. And so the bullying of Peter and John had become the bullying of them all. And that's where God wants all of us, that if you hurt, I hurt. You know, I've given the illustration before, but if I dropped a brick on my toe today, I promise you, every atom of my entire being is going to pay attention to that pain. My hands are going to move. My mouth is going to open. My brain is going to freak out. I'm going to look down. I'm going to grab. I'm going to do everything I can. My whole focus is going to be upon the, on the pain of that toe. That's the way the body's supposed to be. If you hurt, we're all supposed to go, oh. But if you rejoice and you get promoted and you, you have a great breakthrough, we're all supposed to be happy with you as well and not resent it and not say, how, how come them and not me? But we ought to rejoice with you. Because if you get promoted, I got promoted. Amen? That's why I tell you, we all reach people together on the radio every day. It's not just me. We all do it. We do it as a team. Because no turning point, no radio. So their response was, once they told the brethren what had happened to them, they prayed a mighty prayer. And their prayer began with praise. First, they offered a praise for God's omnipotence, and that means all-powerful, omnipotent, all-powerful. Verse 24, so when they all heard the report, they raised their voice to God with one accord, and they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. What are they doing? They're magnifying God and not the problem. Notice how they found comfort in who God is, the omnipotent one, the creator of the universe. In other words, they're saying, Lord, you're so mighty, so big, you spoke all this into existence. What is this little persecution to you? 
They magnified God and minimized the problem. Now, next they praised him for his omniscience, and that's all-knowing. Verse 25, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, now he's quoting Psalms 2, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That had just happened in their midst. And the all-knowing, omniscient God knew these things were coming and had predicted it through his prophet David in the second Psalm. And I should have read where it says God's response to the kings of the earth and the rulers gathering together against the Lord and against his Christ, the Bible says God laughs. What a joke. It's like a, it's like a little army of ants deciding to knock you over. You would look at them and, and laugh. Wah-ha-ha-ha. Right? I mean, good luck. And, and here's these fools thinking they're going to come against God and against his Christ. God laughs. So they praise him for his omnipotence, and they praise him for his omniscience. Then they praise God for his prophetic fulfillment. Verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, now pay close attention to this church. This is powerful. Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do, to do, whatever your hand and your purpose determined they would do before it was done. See, here's the reality. Herod and Pilate thought they were acting independently. They thought they had just made a political decision. Let's just crucify him and get him out of the picture and gain the favor of the Jews and shut everybody up and we'll go home and have a good night's sleep. They thought they were acting independently, but they were actually fulfilling God's purpose. And that's the power of providence, folks, providence. It was actually God's purpose being fulfilled that he had decided before the world began. I mean, this is one of those things you've got to let sink in. Can you say with me the word providence? providence. Let's try another one, foreknowledge. foreknowledge. How about another one, predetermination? See, we're dealing, or really a a God, the God dealing with us is a God who before he flung the stars into space had already anointed his son to be the savior of a fallen world before the world fell and before the world existed. Mind bender. So they're thinking, yeah, let's just get rid of him. We just made a decision. God is saying, no, you're you're doing exactly what I purposed before I started the world. You're You're just doing it for me. I want you to also notice that not only were Herod and Pilate guilty, but the whole human race is also guilty because Peter identifies the two people groups, the Gentiles and the Jew, the people of Israel. So he says the whole world's guilty. There's an old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Let me tell you what, you were. No, I wasn't, Jeff. I've been born in the 21st century, 20th century. You were there. Your sin took him to the cross. My sin took him to the cross. So was I there in God's mysterious dealings and unfathomable ways? I was there. You were there. 
every Gentile, every Jew, we were all there. And Peter said, the whole world is guilty before God, past, present, and future. It's heavy stuff here in the book of Acts. We might as well be in Romans or Ephesians here, right? So next, after three praises, they turn to prayer. In verse 29, look what they pray. Now, Lord, look on their threats. Now, that's a powerful prayer because they're asking God here to turn his gaze onto their enemies and the threats of their enemies so that they're giving the judgment of these people to God and not taking vengeance on themselves. They're saying, God, I want you. And David prayed this throughout the Psalms. You'll find David all the time in the Psalms asking God to take note of what his enemies are doing. The Sanhedrin's threats were real. Because they had murdered Jesus, they might have no qualms massacring all of the church. And they tried later. So I believe in asking God to behold people's threats, evil intents, gossiping, slanderous words. You know what? I've done it many times in my life. Many times. I've had people come against me. Can you believe that? Me. I'm just a likable guy. I get up here, teach the word, and go home, mind my own business, and people come against me. This week, people came against me online, on Facebook, hard. And I just give them to God. Lord, did you hear that? Lord, did you read Facebook with me? Right here. You see that? I mean, face it, folk, if you take a stand for God, you're going to get it. You're going to catch some flack from a lost, in-the-dark world. And many times I have gone into extended prayer and have given enemies to God. Most of the time, it was people who professed Christianity. Those religious folks. They just make your day. In light of the danger of the situation, they finish their prayer with a request for courage. Look what they say. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So think a moment again. The real danger was not the Sanhedrin. That's not what they're saying here but the enemy within them. The real danger was their fear because their fear might shut them up. Let me tell you, have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, protect me from me. Have you ever prayed that? I prayed it this week when I read that Facebook thing. (laughs) I'm kidding. But, But there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, protect me from me because we're so inclined to be afraid. We're so inclined to doubt. We're so inclined to pull back. We're so inclined to uh, shrink uh, in the presence of uh, people's opinion or real danger. So sometimes you just say, Lord, protect me from me and, and take hold of me. That's what they're really saying here. Lord, we could so easily drown in fear and the preaching would stop. So they said, Lord, give us boldness. And the the Sanhedrin will be taken care of. 
And so God answered with a spectacular sign. I love this part. And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken. And they were all, there it is again, read it with me, filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened after the filling of the Spirit? And they spoke the word of God, how? With boldness. So God answered by pouring out the Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit and shook the building. I'm waiting for the day when I'm preaching hard and I say something heavy and all of a sudden, the building shakes. I'm going to give the invitation right then. Come on. <laughs> One time I was, I was in an older building and I was preaching away and we had these hanging lights, these big, heavy hanging lights. And I was preaching away, and all of a sudden, one of them just dropped. <laughs> Kablam! And everybody looked at me like, ooh. <laughs> Another time, I was preaching, and I had a tic-tac in my mouth. <laughs> and that thing, I said the wrong thing, and it shot out. <laughs> and I grabbed it right there. And everybody went, wow, he's anointed. <laughs> I'm serious. I caught it right there. I couldn't believe it. Everybody went, ooh. <laughs> it's true. I put it right back in my mouth and kept on going. <laughs> I'm going to write a book one day when it doesn't matter anymore. And I've got a lot of stories. Anyway, I want you to notice the answer to their prayer was instantaneous. The whole building literally, physically shook with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this shaking was symbolic of what was taking place all throughout Israel. The whole nation trembled as old religious structures were collapsing. Everything they'd known was collapsing. Old ideas old systems, theologies, prejudices, power structures were being shaken to the foundations by the proclamation of the name of Jesus. And a lot of people were fleeing to God's new house, and God's new house was the church. But others were determined to shore up the crumbling old house at all costs. And the same thing's going on in our day. And one of those young men trying to keep the old house together was named Saul. And we're about to meet him in a couple of chapters. But now look at the after effects of the prayer. First, there was amazing oneness. Verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anybody say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they all had things in common. So they were one. They were unified. And that's one of the reasons they had so much power. Now then there was amazing power. First oneness and then power followed oneness. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So they weren't intimidated at all by the Sanhedrin. Far from silencing the apostles, the action of the Sanhedrin only spurred them on. Their threats drove them to their knees, and the Holy Spirit in turn drove them to their feet. But then there was amazing generosity, and as we close, two more verses. It says in verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold 
and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now, I've literally had people to me try to defend communism by saying, this verse right here validates and justifies communism. Because, look, it says that they had all things common. Nobody kept their own possessions, but everything was shared equally, socialism, communism. But there's a major difference. Listen carefully. This was voluntary. Communism is always forced charity. When God does it, as we're about to see next week, if you do it voluntarily, that's God's way. But if you say you're going to do it, you better do it. Now look, in closing, we find the Holy Spirit focusing the narrative onto one particular man's amazing sacrificial giving. His name is Joses, verse 36. Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid every penny of it at the apostles' feet. Now keep this man's sacrifice in mind because next time we're going to meet a couple who likely witnessed this act of giving and probably the, the accolades that came with it and decided that they would act like they had done the same thing, but they lied. And it doesn't go well for them. And we're going to meet them next time. Next time, we're going to talk about jail couldn't hold them. Let's stand together, can we? How many of you enjoyed it tonight? In the Word of God, good? Now, just watch. This Sunday, I'll have a Tic Tac. And and I'll choke on it instead of spitting it out. No, I'm kidding. That also happened to me. It did. I, it did. Now, I just remembered. I, I swallowed wrong, and I was choking. I couldn't get a breath. I came down off the stage, and I'm starting to panic, and I'm thinking, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run out the back and hope I live. And every, all the people thought I was being moved on by the Spirit, and they were all going, ooh, be with him, Lord. And inside, I'm afraid I'm about to die. I could not get a breath. And right when it got, it was just this close to real serious, it came loose. And I said, hallelujah, praise God. Now, hallelujah. Nobody ever knew. All right. Let's thank God. Lord, we just thank you right now for your blessing. Praise your mighty. Can we just lift our hands to Jesus? There's power in that name. There's glory in that name. That name shakes hell and blesses hearts and heals the sick and casts out devils. There's power in that name. Can we just thank the Lord for the name and for the resurrection that's coming? Lord, we thank you for the name of Jesus. Thank you that we have a hope grounded in the promises of God, that there is a resurrection coming. Lord, we thank you for that mighty resurrection. The resurrection that's going to happen when the trumpet blows and Jesus returns and the dead in Christ rise. In the name of Jesus, thank you.